you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 12, the Gospel of John in chapter 12, and we continue through the Gospel of John Sunday mornings this hour, and I want to direct your attention to verse 26, excuse me, rather verse 12, and down through verse 26 is where we're going to be going this morning, and I'm going to read the passage here, but then we'll go back and do some introductory thoughts. And the, the first couple of sections are our main our points, but they're going to be sort of introductory type thoughts to just kind of give context. And we're really going to be going uh, down to Jesus's words in verse 23 and following is where we're really going to be getting to uh, this morning. So just follow along. And again, we'll do some introductory thoughts here to get where we really want to go, the main point of the message this morning. The title of the message is Letting Go of You. Letting Go of You. Let's read in verse 12. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him, when he called Lazarus out of his grave, and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause, the people also met him, for that they heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. Behold, the world is gone after him. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. I need the Lord to help me with this. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Let's pray. Lord, I need your help today. Preach the word. Lord, I'm so thankful for it. So thankful for it. And I pray that each heart today would be engaged with the word of God. There are things that you want to speak today that people need to hear. And so, Lord, I'm going to ask that you just control my tongue. And the spirit with which it's said, 
Lord, that it's your will and yours alone. And I pray that the truth is sought of surrender and yieldedness to the Lord, letting go of self, would ring loud and clear. And Lord, that you would apply it where it's needed. I'm just a person, just a man. I don't know the thought or intents of a person's heart, but you do, and the Word of God does. It discerns them. So, Lord, I'm praying that today that you would just take it and use it for your glory and your honor, and that we would be intentional, as was prayed earlier, very intentional about engaging with God's Word today. Love you, and I thank you for your word and for its truth. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a, a story that a, a man tells. His name is Bart Starr. If you've been around any length of time, you know who Bart Starr was. Bart Starr was the former quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. And he was describing to a group of businessmen one day how his coach, Vince Lombardi, held absolute power. And he stated that as you would walk into Vince Lombardi's office, what you noticed is a huge mahogany desk, desk, excuse me, with a really impressive organizational chart right behind it on the wall, and it was, it was massive. And as you look at the chart, what you see on the chart is at the top, a small block, a rectangle. And inside of that rectangle was printed Vince Lombardi, head coach, general manager. And as you look down, what you find coming out of that box is a line. And it led to a bigger box. And inside of that box, it said, everybody else. Vince Lombardi, head coach, general manager, everybody else. Vince Lombardi held absolute control. And I think that illustrates for us sometimes the way that we want to live. Our name in the top. Amen? Well, the title of the message, again, is Letting Go of You. For introductory purposes, let's, let's, let's just work our way through some of these verses here. What we need to understand, first of all, is that chapter 12 of John is the beginning of Christ's last week on earth. John devotes six chapters, chapter 12 through chapter 17, to the final preparations of Jesus's disciples. He was going to the cross. And chapters 12 through 17 are all about Jesus preparing his disciples for what's coming next. And it really underscores the importance of what Jesus said and did during this time. It underscores the importance of what we're going to get to as the main point of the message this morning. 
But what's happening in our text here are the beginning events that eventually lead to Jesus going to the cross. And in in the first part of chapter 12, we were in the small town of Bethany. And John, as we get into our text here, is transporting us from that small town of Bethany to the bustling metropolis of Jerusalem. In the first verses of this chapter, verse 1, notice, then six days before the Passover came, uh, excuse me, then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, who he raised from the dead. And you know from the last uh, week that here a dinner was made, a supper was made for Jesus, and Martha was serving, and uh, and we, we learned how Mary took that uh, precious ointment and she broke it and she anointed the feet of Jesus. Well, from there, the narrative changes and moves. So go down to verse 12. On the next day, so now it's five days before the Passover. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him. All right, so now it's five days before the Passover. Verse 1 mentions the Passover. Verse 12 doesn't mention the Passover, but, uh, um, but it does talk about the feast. So it does mention the Passover in that sense. And we need to, to just, just for the sake of understanding, understand what the Passover was. The Passover was one of three biblically ordained major Jewish holy days. It celebrated, obviously, the exodus of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Uh, The Bible tells us God was very specific about the day and that it would begin. It occurred on the 15th day of the month Nisan, which was in the first month of Aviv, or spring, the springtime. And according to... Exodus, the book of Exodus, God commanded Moses to tell the people of Israel to take a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the side posts and over the door of their houses. And if they would do that, uh, they would be spared from the angel of death, if you will, and the angel of death would pass over them. In other words, the firstborn would not be touched by the death. Uh, that would come, that was coming. After that occurred, uh, the nation of Israel and those who put the blood on the posts of their doors uh, didn't experience the agony of death that came to the firstborn. Pharaoh did in all of Israel or all of all of Egypt. After the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh said, "Get out! I don't want you here anymore. You need to go and take whatever you want, basically." The passage in Exodus goes on to state that the Passover sacrifice recalls the time when the Lord passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. The story, that story was to be recounted. That story was to be remembered at the Passover meal every year. Exodus 13 and verse 8 says, And thou shalt show thy son... In that day, saying, this is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt. And so what I'm saying is the Passover was a big deal. The Passover was uh, was a celebration. It was a feast that would 
last for seven or eight days. And it was a big deal. And people would come from all over the world to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so we have to understand it's a big deal. So when the Bible says six days before the Passover, and then the next verse in verse 12, on the next day, much people that were come to the feast. You got to understand the picture, the setting. The Passover is only five days away. The city of Jerusalem is bursting with people who've come to celebrate. Bursting with people. Many of these people who we find in our text here had either witnessed Jesus bringing Lazarus out of the tomb or had at least heard about the miracle that he performed. And now this miracle worker is coming into Jerusalem and people wanted to see him. That's what we see in these first few verses. Verse 12, on the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. Now notice, first of all, the triumphant entry or triumphal entry of Jesus. We read these verses. Verse 13 says, The people took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna. That name or word, Hosanna, it simply means save us now. And what it tells us is that these people believed or thought that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the Christ. The Bible records that they said, blessed, uh, uh, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. So when they're crying out, Hosanna, save us now, they are looking at Jesus as their deliverer. And of course, they wanted him to deliver them from Roman oppression and rule. This moment right here is probably the high mark of Jesus's popularity and his influence. But what's interesting is that in just a few days, these hosannas that are being cried out would turn to cries of crucify him, crucify him. Jesus had avoided situations that would hasten his death. He said, because it wasn't time yet, he said, mine hour is not yet come. But now he is forcing the Jewish leaders to act because it was the father's will that Jesus would die and he would die on the Passover. And the hour had come. And so Jesus, as he comes into Jerusalem, takes advantage of the large Passover crowd and he is presenting himself as their king. Now notice that they took palm branches and went forth to meet him. The palm branch was a symbol of triumph and victory in those times. The Romans, they would reward champions of the games and sell, uh, with, with palm branches. 
they would celebrate military success with palm branches. In Judaism, the palm branch represents peace and plenty. And we can see in the, just these verses alone uh, the, the presentation of Jesus Christ as royalty. And John, interestingly enough, is the only gospel that records that the people shouted, blessed is the king of Israel. There's no other gospel that records that. But here's the, here's the thought, or here's the question. Why do you think that in the space of just one short week or a few days, Jesus could go from being the most popular person on the planet, if you will, to public enemy number one? Well, it was primarily the Jew, Jerusalem Jews, influenced by the priests and the Pharisees, that caused this uproar. If you look and just hold your place here, and we'll just touch on this. Matthew chapter 27. And again, these are all introductory thoughts to get where we're really going this morning. So just follow with me here. Matthew 27 and verse 20. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. You see where the root is. The chief priests, the elders, they persuaded the multitudes. How is it that he could go from from the most popular person to public enemy number one. Well, there was, a, there was a devilish influence behind it all by the Jerusalem Jews. The multitude of people that were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, uh, technically, actually, were primarily from Galilee. So there's some that say the same people that were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, were the very same ones that were saying, crucify him, crucify him. That may be true, that may not be true, because they're not, not necessarily the same crowd of people. But I want you to look at verse 16. Verses 16 to 19. Because here we find three groups of people. The Bible says in verse 16, These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause the people also met him, for that they heard that he had done this miracle. And in verse 19, the Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. Behold, the world is gone after him. Here you see three groups of people. First of all are the disciples. The Bible says that the disciples didn't understand at first what was going on here. And notice how, the, how it's worded. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. You have to remember that, that John, when he's writing, he speaks from a looking back perspective all right and so sometimes when john writes he often puts in a little bit of a commentary so it's not always you know um what's the word it's not always in order of events john is looking back and he's giving a narrative here and so as he's looking back he's giving the narrative about the triumphal entry of jesus and he says oh and the disciples didn't really understand what was going on until after he was glorified 
after he had died, after he rose from the grave, then they remembered, oh yeah, this is, was written of him, and, and this is the stuff that was done to him. That's kind of how verse 16 is written. They didn't understand that this was a fulfilling of prophecy until after his death. Then you get to verse 17, and you see the people. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause, the people also met him. Here, verse 17 and 18 talks about people who believed on Jesus. Those who saw Lazarus raised from the dead, they testified to others about what Jesus had done. And for this cause, people wanted to meet him. And then you get to verse 19 and you see the unbelieving Pharisees. So the Pharisees are watching this. They're, they're aware of all of this. And they said, perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. The Pharisees can't hardly believe their eyes at what's happening. This multitude of people, this triumphal entry of Jesus, the cries of Hosanna, the king, save us now. His popularity, more and more people hearing about the miracle of Lazarus. It kept other people, it kept bringing people to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus was causing them so much trouble. They were jealous. They were losing their popularity, their influence. And just as a side note, by the way, it was their jealousy that fueled their hatred for him, that amped up the call to crucify him. And you know what? That kind of jealousy is a deplorable thing. The Bible says that God is a jealous God. That's not the same kind of jealousy that these people had. This kind of jealousy leads to murder. If not by a cross, certainly by lips. And what I mean by that is sometimes people can get jealous of others in their own heart and it brings bitterness, it embitters the heart, it separates and it divides people who ought to be loving each other. That kind of jealousy is a deplorable thing. And then you get to verses 20 and 22 and you find something that's not recorded anywhere else. Verse 20 says, And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Here's some interested Greeks. The Bible says certain Greeks or Gentiles. These would have been God-fearing Gentiles who were probably not yet proselyte, but they still admired much of what they saw in Judaism and so on. And they were, would have been ones who came, the Bible says they came up to the feast. And the Bible says that they desired to see Jesus. We would see Jesus. And I think it's interesting if nothing else, that at the birth of Christ, Gentiles came from the east, and now, right before his death, it's Gentiles coming once again. And I don't know exactly why this little section is recorded for us, but I think it's a beautiful thing. And here's the reason why. Because these people coming to Jesus, 
introduces the consummation of Jesus' work and his life and his ministry. Jesus did not give his life for Jews only. He gave his life for the whole of the human race. And this is a powerful thing that, Jesus, that, that is mentioned here by John. It introduces to us, again, the very reason for which Christ died. The Bible says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, not Jews only, that he gave his only begotten Son. Hebrews 2.9 says that he, Jesus, by the grace of God, tasted death for every man. These Greeks were a token of the world of people beyond Israel who would be saved through Jesus' death and resurrection. And what's interesting as well is when we read in other passages, parallel passages, what we find that has just happened and taken place on this very day is that the king, the king had presented himself, the king had been rejected by Israel. If you were to take the time to read over in Luke chapter 19, you would find that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He looked at them. He wept over Jerusalem. And the reason he did was because they had not known the time of their visitation. Here he was, their Messiah, and they rejected him. And the Jews said, we want to see a sign. But these Gentiles said, we want to see Jesus. I think it's a, a beautiful picture. And again, the only gospel that records this is John. But it, for us, is a, is a picture of a world beyond the nation of Israel who would be saved through Christ's death. But now I want you to get to verses 23 to 26. And here's where we get to the main part of the message this morning and the meaning of the title, Letting Go of You. Notice verse 23, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. I want you to notice the word glorified in verse 23. Here the sufferings of Christ are predicted. It's coming very soon. And Jesus said, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. This is talking about his death that was impending. It's talking about his death and his resurrection. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Listen, friend, and understand this. Jesus was here for a purpose. He was here for a reason. And part of that reason was to glorify the Father. But what we need to understand and remember is that there was no other way for glory, for the glory of God the Father's plan for redemption other than Calvary and the grave. There was no other way. Jesus said, in fact, in the garden, when, when anticipating him going to the cross, he said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
If there's any other way for, for God's plan of redemption to be fulfilled, let's do that. If, if it's possible, let, let this cup pass for me. But there was no other way for God to be glorified, for his plan to be fulfilled, for the redemption of mankind. And so Jesus' attitude was this. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And you need to remember this. The attitude of Christ, not my will, but thine be done. Now notice verse 24. Jesus says, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now certainly he's talking about himself. And he's talking about the fact that he's going to go to the cross. And he says if, if, if his love for men was going to bear much fruit, that he had to fall into the ground and die. He had to be like the seed that went into the ground to die. Death was the only way that he could be the Savior. Death was the necessary price for fruitfulness. And Jesus sees himself as the seed that would die and produce fruit. Now, we could go back and we could look at how masterful Jesus was at using observations from nature to illustrate spiritual realities. Prior to this, he was talking about the sower sowing seed. But now he's talking about the seed itself, that the seed has to die first in order to bring forth fruit. In other words, that seed has to lose its own identity so that a new plant could spring up and bring forth fruit. And the truth that I'm trying to illustrate or bring out here, and really the truth that Jesus is speaking of here, is this. Death is a condition for life at its fullest. Death is a condition for life. To spring forth. Jesus understood that his death would bring forth life for many people. We say, okay, we understand that, but you know what? There's another application here. There's applications that I want to make in two different areas, but Jesus actually makes the application for us very well. Look at verse 25. Jesus said, He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. There's a lesson for sinners here, but there's also a lesson for believers. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am there also my, ser also my servant be. Jesus makes the application here of this truth that death is a condition for life. Listen, the lesson for the sinner is this. Until the sinner dies to his own self, until the sinner dies to his own works, until the sinner dies to his own efforts, to his own merit, to his own righteousness, until the sinner dies to his own will, he cannot know life and be saved. Listen, there might be some sitting here this morning, you've heard the gospel so many times, the Spirit of God has convicted you so many times but you're still not saved. And the reason you're not is because you will not die to you. 
You want to control your life. You don't want to submit to the Lord. You don't want him to be Lord and master of your life. There's still something that is keeping you from letting go of you. It's only going to bring death. That's a final death. And in order for you to be saved, you've got to come to the place where you're willing to die to you. Death is a condition for life. But there's also a lesson for believers. We too, listen, have been planted in the likeness of his death. Romans 6, 5. That's talking about our salvation. Dying to the old man of sin. We've been planted in the likeness of his death. That establishes our position in our salvation. But to become fruitful in the Christian life, we've got to learn to die to self. We've got to put to death the works of the flesh, the old nature. We have to put to death our will and our own way of doing things. Verse 25 says, He who loveth his life shall lose it. But he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. The one who loves his old life, who loves his old nature, the one who loves his will and his way, listen, who works so hard to try to bring about joy for himself, I love me, I want my way, you're going to lose your life. You're going to ruin it. But he who hates his life in this world is going to keep it for eternal life. Listen, it's not saying that you can't enjoy your stay here on planet Earth. It's not saying that at all. But what it is saying that is in comparison, in comparison to my devotion to Jesus Christ, it's as if I detest my life. I hate my life. In my comparison to my devotion to Christ, I am nothing. I'm no one. I'm a servant of the Lord. He's done everything for me. I don't have a will in a way because he purchased me. He bought me with his blood. I'm his. And my job now is to glorify him with my body and my spirit, which are God's. Not yours. Listen, the issue... The issue that so many face, Christian people face, they can't seem to get it together. They can't figure it out. They can't get life together. The issue is a one of surrender. The issue is one of death. That's the issue. They're not willing to die to themselves. What's an example of loving your life? Jesus said, you love your life? This temporal earthly life, you love it? You work so hard to bring happiness to yourself as if this temporal life is, is the main thing. You love your life, you're going to lose it, man. You love your life, you're going to lose it, lady. All the things that you think are going to bring you happiness in this life, you're going you're, you're to find it's only emptiness. What's an example of that? An example of that is being more concerned with my happiness than my obedience to Christ. My selfish life, my self-focused life, 
my life, keeping it for me. This is what I think is going to bring me happiness. And being more concerned about that than my obedience to Christ. That's an example of loving your life. An example of hating your life. Because Jesus said, you hate your life. It means to detest. And again, it's by comparison. An example of hating your life is being willing to die to what I think I want. And having the attitude of Jesus, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But it wasn't possible. And Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I surrender and yield to you. An example of losing your life is having the same attitude. Death to what I think I want. And Lord, your will be done. Being willing to lay it down. Being willing to sacrifice. Being willing to surrender it all and give it up for him. Why? Because I trust him. If that's what I need to do, if that's what the Lord wants, I trust him. I'm his. My job is to glorify him in my body and my spirit because they belong to him. I'm purchased with a price. His way is always good. His way is always right. I can totally trust him and I can lay down the things that I think that I want and fully trust him that his will and his way is always good. It'll only be better. And I could never, ever, ever bring fulfillment in my life like he can. Listen, the Christian life is a paradox. To keep, you've got to let go. To be great, you've got to serve. To live, you've got to die. That's what the Christian life is. And it's not until we die. It's not until we die to self that we realize the real joy of letting go. It's not until you do it. It's not until you die that you finally realize, looking back, the joy of letting go. I could never, ever know the joy that God has in store for me unless I'm willing to die and let that go. You're not going to know the emptiness either of keeping until you die. Listen, you're not going to know the emptiness of keeping. And what do I mean by that? Oftentimes, there are things that people want or they think are going to make them happy, and they're holding on to it. They're not willing to die to it. They're not willing to let it go. And the Lord says, okay, I'll give you what you want, but you're not going to like it. And they don't know the emptiness of it all until later on. You know what? The Israelites were like that. In Psalm 106 and verse 14, the Bible says that the Israelites, they lusted exceedingly. What that meant was it means they had this longing. They had this wish. They lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. They were complaining about God's provision. 
They were complaining about the manna. They wanted the meat and they wanted all the things. And they just kept complaining and complaining. And they weren't uh, content with God's provision. And they were grumbling and murmuring in the wilderness. They tempted God. And the next verse says, and God gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. In other words, all right, you're not content with my provision. You're not going to surrender to me. You're not going to yield to me. You're not going to obey to me. Okay, I will give you what you want, but you're going to reap. And you're going to find out that there's only emptiness and leanness on the other side. They wanted a king. They said, give us a king like all the other nations. They wouldn't yield to God. They wouldn't submit to his leadership and his rule over them. They said, give us a king. And God said, okay, I'll give you what you want. But what did it end up doing? It ended up bringing bondage. They went into captivity. It ended up bringing misery. Because they wouldn't yield to God. The Christian life is a paradox. In order to live, you got to die. In order to find life, you've got to let it go. And not until we learn to die or let it go will we actually realize the joy that comes with letting it go. Verse 26, Jesus says, If any man serve me, let him follow me. Discipleship. Discipleship means crucifying the will and putting Christ first. Listen, when I got saved, when I got saved, I laid down my rights. I was no longer my own. And I understood this. When I gave my life to Christ, I had lived all of this life for myself, and I started to understand all the emptiness of the world. I understood the emptiness of my way and doing what I wanted to do. It didn't bring fulfillment. I was miserable. And when I got saved, there was this choice that had to be made. Die to what I want. Die to what I think is best. Die to that to serve Christ, to live for Christ. I gave up my rights. I laid it down because he bought me with a price, with his own blood. And the primary thing now is to glorify the Lord with my body and my spirit, which are God's. Listen, I laid down my future and all of its plans and trusted him with it. I had a future planned out. I had it mapped out, at least the major part of it. I had plans for these things to happen. But to come to a place of genuine repentance, I had to let it go, to die to it. I laid down my future and the plans that I had made, what I thought that I wanted, because it was better. Listen, it was better to trust my future to the one who sees and knows the end from the beginning. It's better to, to put my future in his hands. 
And what I'm simply saying is that the more that we die to self, the more that we end up finding real life in God. And all through life, all through the Christian life, we've got to be prepared to sacrifice all that is going to hinder our highest service to Christ. Jesus said, if you're going to serve me, then you've got to follow me. You know what it means to follow? That word means to be in the same way. In other words, things sometimes need to be sacrificed for Christ's sake so that I can be in line with him to be in the same way as him. F.B. Meyer said this. He said, the soul that dares to live this way will find streams flowing from every smitten rock and honey in the carcass of every slain lion, day out of night, springs out of winter, flowers out of frost. He's going to find joy out of sorrow. He's going to find fruitfulness out of pruning in his life. And he's going to find real life out of death. Only when we die to self and we lay it all down, that's when we find real life. I would sum up this section with just four quick statements. Verse 19 said, the Pharisee said, look, the world has gone after him. And the question is, have you? Have you gone after Christ? Truly gone after Christ? Verse 21, the Greek said, sir, we would see Jesus. And the question is, do you? Do you want to see the Lord? Do you want to be near the Lord? Verse 25 makes a statement about life. And the question is, do you hate your life or do you still love it? Are you still holding on to it? In verse 26, Jesus says, if any man serve me, let him follow me. Are you serving him or are you still trying to serve self? What is your condition at this moment? Maybe you're a believer. You know, Jesus Christ is your savior, yet you're still struggling with something in your life. Ask the Lord, what do I need to lay down this morning? What do I need to give up? What do I need to crucify? And die to self so that I can live in you. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never been truly saved. You've been stubborn with God. Unwilling to die to self and yield it all to the Lord. Well, Jesus Christ invites you to come and die this morning so that you can burst forth with new life full of fruit a life of abundance a life worth living a life that isn't selfish a life that matters a life that is committed to Christ that's the invitation if God speaks to your heart you respond Heavenly Father, use your word this morning to speak to hearts.